Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the opportunity to talk with Jay Newman. As you listen to this episode, I want you to keep your ears open for two major concepts and themes throughout. The first concept is that the state is going to state. It's going to do what states do. Now, since states are usurpers of God and seek to be Lord, this means that they seek to put all things into subjection to them. Now, that's very reminiscent of what is said about Jesus in the Bible. You know, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will have all things placed into subjection under him, under his feet. And 1 Corinthians 15.8 and Hebrews 2.8 talks all about that. Now, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Yet, Caesar tries to be Lord. And for many Christians, Caesar is Lord as we participate in his ceremonies and sacrifices. And we look to government as true salvation, while we view the church as an impotent country club. The state seeks to subject all, and this extends even into the smallest minutia, like sporting events being used as propaganda for state control. So while we do delve a bit into propaganda in this episode, um, I, I do want to use this as kind of a plug for the next season, which is going to get a lot more into propaganda and, and unpack some of the things that we've talked about in this episode or hinted at in this episode. In fact, I've already provided links to the first two episodes of the season pre-released in my episode where I interview Robert Mirapol. So I'll link that episode in the notes so you can hear that interview and listen to the first two episodes on propaganda early. So the first concept, the state is going to state. That's important to listen out for. But the second thing I want you to track is what our Christian response ought to be to this fact that the state is going to seek to usurp God. You know, many Christian anarchists end up being more focused on the anarchy part than the Christian part, focusing on attacking and critiquing the state rather than building the type of community where Jesus is portrayed as Lord through our love, service, and actions. Positive anarchy, or discipleship as we identify it, is something that ends up being a major concept in this interview and is different from just a mere critique of the state. Critiquing the state is negative. It's a tearing down. But positive anarchy, or as we identify it here, discipleship, is really something that ends up being a major concept in this interview. Discipleship, not conversion, is the Great Commission. And I think a lot more Christians need to understand that. You know, sure, conversion precedes discipleship and it's necessary to it, but emphasizing conversion to the exclusion or neglect of discipleship is uh, a get-rich-quick scheme. You know, pray this prayer, then you're a Christian. That's not the gospel. Discipling people to live in the kingdom that Lord Jesus established is the gospel. Critiquing the state is not the gospel. Converting people and playing a numbers game with your religion, denomination, or political party isn't the gospel. Coercing people through legislation to comport with your brand of morality, which you tout as God's brand, isn't the gospel. The gospel is not a top-down approach, but a bottom-up approach. It's an upside-down kingdom where the last are first and where conquering comes by cross. If you keep these two ideas in your mind, that states set themselves up as pseudo-kingdoms and that our job is to disciple others into an alternative kingdom, then you'll get your bang for your buck out of this discussion. So here it is, my interview with Jay Newman.
why don't you just uh, start by introducing yourself really quickly? And uh, I think, you know, one of the the most pertinent things to kind of bring up is, you know, I heard that, um, you know, you, you came to the conclusion of Christian anarchism and you used to be very pro-state uh, and, and into politics, um, but then you, you kind of shifted. And I think 2016 was, it was a pretty big time where you shifted, which for me was true. And for a lot of people that I've talked to. Um, so if you could just kind of give your background and, and uh, where you've come from and, and how you got to Christian anarchism, that would be awesome. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Jay Newman and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and as far as like my political leanings, I've, um, I mean, I guess my background would probably be described better as uh, politically conservative. Um, that's, I mean, I come from the American South, so that's kind of just a general especially growing up in a rural area. So, so f- f- sorry, first of all, Nashville, Tennessee, but you have an Eagles hat on. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I grew up in Arkansas and when I was growing up, um, well, first of all, the Tennessee Titans didn't exist. There were the Houston Oilers when I was growing up and there just was no geographical affiliation. So, um, I did know that there were a lot of Dallas Cowboys fans and I did not like them at all. And so, uh, you know, I got into pro football and, you know, you have to pick your team when you're growing up in a middle of nowhere. So uh, I picked the Eagles, one, because they hate the Cowboys and two, their best player at the time, Reggie White, was a, a, a Christian minister and was an exciting player. And I just loved the team. I loved everything about it. And something about being an Eagles fan fits my personality as well. So, yeah, I've been an Eagles fan for probably over 30 years now. Yeah, I'm from I'm from Pennsylvania, so I understand. I understand that. Oh, uh, yeah. What part are you from? Uh, Lancaster County area, Lebanon County. Yeah. Hershey. yeah. My, my, my wife grew up in Hershey. OK, yeah, I'm from a small town. I always say, you know, Lancaster because people know Amish. Um but I'm from Anvil, which is like there's Hershey, Palmyra, Anvil. So she asked her, she, oh, she'll probably crazy. know Anvil. Yeah, she absolutely does. My sister-in-law um, lives in uh, Palmyra now. So, yeah, I know. I kind of know the area. So, so sorry, I, I interrupted oh, wow. your, your story about yourself for the for Yeah, I know. Go, go birds. You don't have that. I don't mind that interruption. I would talk about the Eagles all day. Um, they're very frustrating. Um, but, and it it is kind of connected because sports has become kind of my, uh, my outlet for some things that, uh, maybe the state tries to capitalize on, you know, like this team spirit type of, uh, uh, adherence to a, uh, a tribe and this kind of thing. But, you know, the, the, the consequences aren't as drastic as, you know, invading other countries and killing civilians so you know so it's like the 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 terms of uh the game are a little different so sports is you know i think there is something in all humans that draws us towards a a kind of being on a team you know cheering for a team having the home team that you cheer for and being loyal to a group and you know i think sports is a way that is healthy and 
well, it's not always healthy, but um, at least the consequences aren't like being yay team America, or, you know, uh, you know, support our troops, military, and like not really thinking about what it is that we're thanking them for, you know, like, so yeah, these questions have always been a part of my mindset. Um, my parents raised me to not have a a political allegiance to one party so and my parents were be very vocal they prayed about the candidate they did not vote party lines uh, like each candidate we take on a case-by-case basis and we don't care about their party we care about their policies so that's the way i was raised i think that's right um to a degree um but uh i wonder if it's not impossible now like i think in an ideal world that would be great. Let's vote for the candidates. And the problem is every candidate that's out there has been put there by the party. And the only way that they're going to keep their position is if they are loyal to the party. So you may think you're voting for a candidate, but if they're affiliated with a party, that's what they're going to do. They're not going to represent you over their party. And so it's kind of like maybe overly idealistic to think you can vote for um a candidate instead of their party you know you 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 have you will end up voting for both so um yeah so my disillusionment with politics probably began well almost as soon as i was aware of them i guess the first thing that happened for me that was like really felt like it hurt me was that i supported george w bush for president and I really did like his platform. And if I go back and look at his platform now, I still like it. The problem was he never was that president that he said he was going to be. And to some degree, you give him a break because 9-11 happened. And, you know, I give you a break for change. But, man, the way he went was just so heavy handed and almost totalitarian with the Patriot Act and you know, like cracking down and then starting a war for no reason. What did Iraq have to do with 9-11, you know? And it was just like, didn't make any sense. But then you're going around and everybody's like, yep, we got to do it. We got to do it. And I'm like, there's no one who's, there's no dissenting voices, even in the church. It was really, really frustrating. Um, And I guess the next big thing that happened was for me, I did get very much into the Ron Paul movement when he ran for president in 2008 and 2012. And I wasn't the only one there were he would get hundreds of thousands of people at his rallies. But and then that's what I was saying about the party loyalty. Like he easily was the most popular candidate running for Republican ticket. He easily was the most popular. Like he he was generating more buzz, uh, more more people were coming to his rallies like by tenfold than anyone else, whether it was McCain in 08 or. Romney in 2012, like they were not popular, but the way Ron Paul was popular, they didn't care because Ron Paul wouldn't play ball. They were never going to give him the Republican candidacy for president. They were never going to. The Republican Party wouldn't let it happen, you know, and they were just hoping that some people who were followers of his would maybe filter over to their side, I guess. I don't know what. But and that's when it start, you start to realize, like, man, this is not about policies. This is not about uh, the individuality of the candidates. You really are stuck with a two-party system that 
really neither party is different. They, they, just, they both want to grow the government tremendously. They just disagree on how to spend the money. And we're getting taxed more than ever. And they're spending more than ever. And they're inflating the dollar with the debt that they're accruing. And they just keep spending more. And it's like neither party changes it. So that's when you just kind of be like, what are we going to do? There's got, there's got to be a different way. Um, and what does this have to do with my, sorry, I'm outside and I get <laughs> someone, I don't know if they lost their muffler. I don't know if you heard that. I could barely hear anything. Um, yeah, you just get to where you're like, this isn't, this is no longer compatible with my faith. Like this, they, they, at one point you thought, you think that, oh, this can work together. I mean, I never thought we we're going to save the world through politics, but and some people do think that, but I've never thought that. I just thought, well, there's a way to be a faithful Christian in a country, you know, in under the rule of a state. There's a way to be a faithful Christian. Um, now I think, I think that I think, I'm not totally committing to this t entirely, but I think that I think right now that the only way to be a faithful Christian within the the being a citizen of a state is to not participate at all um try to be a good citizen but like there's almost i cannot think of any way to be a part of the system that has been created and still think that you have a pure heart before god because you you make yourself culpable right i mean maybe not I mean, people will disagree on the ethics of that, but it feels dirty to me. It feels dirty to even have anything to do with it. So I don't know. I know I realize I just said a lot, but you asked me a very broad question. So I just threw a lot of stuff out there. Uh, why don't you? No, why don't that's you, what that's what I love about these uh, about interviews is that uh, I, I love the uh, you know improvisation and trying to figure out where to go. So uh, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Lot, lots to work with. Um, you know, first I would, so I would just want to ask you, have you read Aiden Balu by any chance? No, I know the name, I'm, I'm, but I, I don't think I'm not, I don't believe I've read him. I'll have to send you uh, a fantastic quote that he has, but he has a, a his book is great. Um, can't think of the title off the top of my head at the moment, but he's got a section where he talks about complicity, like by, by participating uh, right. your, your complicity. And he says, like, basically, if you vote for somebody and they do something, whatever they do, that's within the, the laws of the Constitution, you've agreed to them doing that because you've said, OK, I agree to this system and whatever you do within those parameters, I'm good with. So, you know, George W. Bush goes to war, Congress approves it and all that stuff. Like, I'm culpable because I approved it within those bounds. Like, I knew what he could do with that power that I gave him. So I'll, uh, I'll shoot that to you later, but, um, I, it's, that's a very, I will, I will say that that is a very good argument. I'm, I, I'm staying in the middle on it because I understand that that's not like, yeah, I, I, I can argue both sides of that to a degree, but I just think that even introducing the idea of moral culpability or complicity, I like that um is um make it, it it should make people think before they go support a candidate like if 
they should think about their own complicity about what that person's going to do, which you can't predict entirely. You know, you can't do it with some within reason, but you really you have no idea. They're going to tell you they're going to be a certain kind of uh, leader that they are in no way bound to fulfill. And like they never do. I mean, that's like the whole cliche of being a politician is like they just lie to get your votes. Um, and they all do it to one degree or another. So I just like how. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard one that I think most people don't ask themselves. They've made these, uh, they've compartmentalized so that they they don't ever think about their own moral responsibility for their political advocacy. And I I just think introducing the idea without saying like, I think the other side of it is you can't go around saying, uh, pointing fingers at people. That's never going to go. I was like, you're the reason, you know, you, you, you killed all those Arabs in Yemen. Well, no, they actually didn't. So there are levels of moral complicity, right? <laughs> so yeah, they didn't pull the trigger. Um, but they're, they're just to, to acknowledge that there might be some small level of guilt uh, by association, like I think needs to at least be discussed. Yeah, because so, yeah. I think Americans are really good at pointing that out uh, with other people. So like the Holocaust, you'll hear quotes all the time, you know, evil prevails when good men do nothing and uh, right. all that good. kind of stuff. So yeah. so those German right. citizens were complicit with the Nazi government because they didn't do anything. Um, <clears throat> it seems it seems very similar. Um, it, you know, with, with yeah. it does. I mean, I'm not saying I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I think there, you know, there there are two maybe uh, pushbacks that, and and I think the strongest pushback is, okay, so I don't want to be complicit with the state because the tools of the state are coercion through through force, like that's what legislation is. It's it's uh, you know, force is the power of the sword, and um, so for me to keep my hands clean. You know, as a Christian anarchist, I say, well, I'm, I'm not participating in the system. And so a lot of people would uh, portray that as retreatism. And so me choosing yes. to, um, to, to not participate is me choosing to not be effective, to not love my neighbor. Um, and I, I think there are, you know, especially with, with uh, oppressed communities, you know, I think especially of, um, you know, the black community who, where you have a lot of, um, people in that community who say like we need to get our rights through through voting and such and so christian anarchism is is hard to even imagine so i'd love for maybe you to to talk about how um christian anarchism is not non-participation and uh, one, one of the examples that comes to mind is uh when i when i heard your discussion earlier uh, you had mentioned a charter school and kind of how anarchy works so maybe you could kind of give us a vision for how christian anarchism is can be participation and even more meaningfully without the moral compromise yeah sure so the idea that people have that the uh candidates they vote for are going to alter society in a way that is more beneficial for the most people um and whether you think that's merely pragmatic or that it is also in some moral or righteous way that we're uh, improving society um, by voting for these leaders who are going to enact these policies. So that's that's a top-down way of thinking that 
We're going to vote for leaders who are going to enact policies that are going to create a society that is more just for the most people. Um, that doesn't seem to be working. It's never really seemed to work. I don't. I would love an example of that where the state has actually made a more just society for the most people. It, it just historically, it's not really how it goes. So, and even if someone could cite something, it would be the exception, not the rule. Um, the idea behind uh, Christian anarchism is to, well, one is to say that we see the top as Christ. So as far as society is concerned, we're already turning what's up is down and what's down is up. We're turning the world upside down. So we go from a top down perspective with Christ as our king, and that flows down into creating a just society by transforming the hearts of those who have received his love and are faithful to live out their lives in obedience to him. We believe that that's how the top-down works. But as far as society is concerned, it's inverted. So how it looks to our society is bottom-up, right? So what does that mean? Um, it means that as you live your life with your family, with your neighbors, you look at ways that you can express love and create an atmosphere of justice that ultimately, as it takes hold, uh, changes society from the small ways to the big ways. So instead of enacting policies and hoping that those trickle down to things like our schools and um, you know our, our local laws and things like that, we're saying we're going to live in such a way in our households, in our schools, um, in in our communities, other you know ways we interact in the neighborhood that's going to transform society from the small to the big, right? And that's, that's the idea of how, uh, when Jesus said, uh, you know, to think of the mustard seed and the, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's so small, but it becomes this massive tree where all the birds of the air can perch and rest and all this. The kingdom of God is like that. So that's what that means from being bottom up. Like you go from this one small bit of transformation, whether it's in your household or in your community of believers, your church, and you say, what are the needs of our society? So you mentioned the charter school. Um, there was, you know, it's, as an example of changing society, there was an inequity in our neighborhood that was, uh, you know, it's a continually gentrifying neighborhood. In fact, I'm looking right across the street at 13 townhomes that are currently being built. Um, and you know, they're probably going to go for, I mean, I don't know, just insane amounts of money that five years ago, the residents on this street, not a single one of them could have afforded it. Right. Um, and so you're like looking at this. And so you have a very diverse neighborhood and how the school started to look was not reflecting the diversity of the neighborhood. You had schools with predominantly black students whose families are getting outpriced from the area. And then you had schools of predominantly white students in areas that in a school that used to be predominantly black is now almost totally white and middle upper to upper class. And sorry, well, this doesn't seem just or right. It's like, okay, the, the housing market is what the housing market is, but we still all live here. How, how can we still live together as neighbors? 
And so we had uh, a guy launch a charter school with the express purpose of creating opportunities for all students in the neighborhood, regardless of their economic background. And so what we have seen, long story short, um, we've seen a lot of imitations. We've seen that Metro Nashville education was antagonistic towards this at first, but they see that they're number one in all these metrics. They're the best school in the whole county out of like 180 schools. So then the Metro Education Board goes, okay, they're doing something that's working. We should imitate that, right? So that's what I mean. It's not non-participation. It's saying we believe justice works this way because Christ in his mercy has saved us and he has transformed our hearts and he has called us to live a life with our neighbors in love. And that means promoting equity and justice for them. We're not pushing that away. We're not saying we're not going to advocate for that. We're saying that we transform the society by living from that truth in such a way that we believe is the only way that works. The only way justice comes is through the reign of Jesus Christ. So we live under that reign in a way that does have an effect of creating more justice for our neighborhoods and for our societies in which we dwell and live. That's how it works. And we believe that it works that way. And what's the world around going to do? Well, historically speaking, if you look at the history of the church, that's how the church has taken hold. It's like, why, why, are the, why are the Christians not afraid to, to, to serve the sick? Why are the Christians um, able, able to thrive during adverse circumstances like famines, uh, war, and drought? The Christians keep thriving in the Roman Empire. They, they started, people started noticing, like, there's one community that keeps doing well despite whatever th- bad things are happening. And it was because they, they lived out this life that had positive results. You know, it's not, I would say it's more participatory than the Christianity of a lot of Americans, which seems to be this kind of like, well, when we get to heaven, it'll all be good. But they're not living out their faith in any real tangible way that has any meaning here and now. The idea of the, the politics that come from a ethos of Christian anarchy actually for the Christian requires you to be more participatory in your neighborhood it's not it's not escapism you know it's not uh it's the opposite is what i'm trying to say so that was a long way of saying but i i do hear the pushback that you said a lot and i'm like no it it is actually the opposite and i wish i could say that i am like i had a great example of how i'm faithfully living that out but it's hard and the church is a mess right now and you know, all I know is I've got my little Christian community. We meet. We're going to gather actually here in a couple hours and uh, you know, try to live out faithfully the calling of Jesus in a society that is increasingly making it sound like we're the bigot and the bad guys. And um, I don't know. I mean, instead of fighting a culture war. Why don't we just demonstrate what it looks like to follow Jesus? Because if we testify that he has changed our our life, that he has brought true, genuine life to us, why don't we just live in such a way that that's attractive to those around us instead of advocating for, you know, politicians that we think are going to defend us that actually morally compromise us, you know, without singling anyone out. They're all that way. but. That's 
2016 made everyone realize that that's what was happening. And um, I'm grateful in a way. I tell people I'm grateful for the Trump phenomenon because he he wasn't a good enough actor to hide it. He showed everyone what it really was. And so when it was ugly and it was filled with hypocrisy and, you know, him trying to play the part like he's super uncomfortable, like talking, like talking about the Bible or quoting the Bible, all the politicians, they co-opt biblical language and the language of uh, the faithful. And he was so bad at it that it made you it made people realize these guys aren't really Christians. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think what was disconcerting for me and what woke me up wasn't that a politician was messed up because, I mean, you expect that. It's that, you know, there were a lot of wolves that took their sheep clothing off, you know, to rally around them. And all of a sudden inside your Christian community, you're like, I, I didn't see that coming from, from these people. I, I wasn't, I was only surprised by uh, the numbers. I wasn't surprised that it was there. I knew it was there, but I certainly thought that when faced with you know, the, the black and whiteness of a s- extremely immoral candidate from people who, you know, would talk about integrity from our leaders and all this, like all of a sudden they didn't care. And then you realized, holy cow, you never cared about that. And I'm like, you, you, I believed you. I believe that you voted for someone because you thought they were the most Christian or the most moral and moral leadership was important for uh the church to thrive i don't agree with that i never agreed with that but it's a compelling argument nonetheless it never was that it never ever ever was that yeah yeah that's the uh wake up call the second season that that i did was on consequentialism because that was like i i was i was trying to wrap my mind around what was happening uh, in our community, because integrity was a big thing for, you know, I grew up in a Christian school, Christian college, um, all that stuff. Um, and I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And then all of a sudden, I realized our Christian community are, were relativists, uh, moral relativists, and we, uh, we believe in ends justifying the means. And there's, there's, there's a whole lot of it in retrospect, that was present before 2016 that I just didn't see. I didn't have the lens to view it. But once I, I found consequentialism, I was like, okay, I can, I can view my community through this now. And, and a lot of stuff makes sense. I mean, and that's why I say I'm grateful for it because it exposed a lot of things that weren't as easy to see. Um, and in some ways I do believe that uh, while there it's created a ton of turmoil because there's the other side that totally lost their minds and freaked out you know the the what do they call it the uh tds trump derangement syndrome where it's just like people can't even think coherently about this anymore you know um and maybe some of that's starting to subside you're starting to see more liberal voices going like okay this has gone too far you know like when bill maher starts to sound like he's uh a conservative Maybe the thing has actually not, maybe you guys have just gone too far to your, your left side. And, you know, if, if Bill, if you're calling Bill Moore, uh, uh, someone on the right, like, I, don't, I don't think that's what happened here, but um, 
and he's still incredibly antagonistic towards Christians. So as you know, as far as I'm concerned, we fundamentally disagree on a lot, but um, I don't know if some of that's subsiding or not, but I do think that eventually we may look back and say that was the beginning point for um, it's cl- cliche, but I don't know a better word for it. Um, revival. Like I, I think that it, it's going to create the atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to work in society, in American society, that is uh, not going to is no longer going to be contaminated with state worship. Um, and it has been like anytime you in my lifetime, anytime there's some sort of like uh, outpouring of the Spirit. It gets mixed in with this state worship. This idolatry gets mixed in, and then the, the, the whole thing kind of fizzles out. I mean, I remember more charismatic type awakenings, they call them, like down in uh, Pensacola, Florida, up in Toronto, there was one, um, like these outpourings of God's spirit in a way where people were coming to repentance, and you're seeing, you know, God work in people, and you're seeing communities be healed. And then within a year or two of that, they've got, political candidates coming in that they're advocating you know you look at bethel like you look at that they came out of all those revival movements and they are so in the bag as pro-trump and it was like you have all these worship very popular worship leaders in the white house when he was there and it's like what how did this turn into this and so i i think that we may be able to look back and see a genuine outpouring of God's spirit that is unencumbered by state worship. And I think that's the other thing that I have taken to do. I I call it state worship because um, we need to call it what it is. You know, I mean, I, I, I've become pretty particular with that. And I've had people take offense at that, but I'm like, well, what do you call it? You know, I mean, I, Tell me how this is different from the cult of the emperor in Roman times. I mean, I, it, it seems to be far more similar. You, you got people putting their hand over their heart and making verbal uh, pledges um, to, to, of, of, of complicity and solidarity and saying, you know, I'm allegiant to this state. And you got to, you know, just drive down. You see how many flags you're waving or whatever. And it's like, I don't know. Seems like the cult of the emperor, you know? Um, so, I mean, just call it what it is. And I, I think a true revival in America will only break out when it is free from the idolatry of state worship. And that may only happen when that may only happen when the culture does begin to re- regard Christianity as hostile to their to their ends, you know, and like we are. We are the the agenda of God's kingdom is hostile to the ends of the state. And so I think once we can see that and maybe 2016 was the beginning of of seeing that happen. I don't know. I am very hopeful. I mean, these kind of things. You know, they, they slow cook. They're, they're, they're not microwave. So um, I, I I am hopeful that we can see that. But I do think that somehow. We have to disassociate the Christ church in America with state worship. And I think you're already starting to see it happen in small ways. 
I mean, you're seeing some churches double down, but it's become more disgusting when they do. Right. And they're showing who they are. They're exposing who their true Lord is. You know, so I, I I'm hopeful in that way because they're they're showing their cards and. I'm rambling a lot. I don't feel like no, you're interrupting me no, nearly. No, no, I, I let you talk, but <laughs> no, you should interrupt me more. Okay. okay. Well, so, so speaking of slow cooking, which I, I feel is a, you know, a good uh, metaphor or whatever it is with, uh, you know, your profession. Um, it, it reminds me of, so when you were talking about the top down approach versus the bottom up, I think that was a, there was a realization that I had in regard to that. Uh, I, I think it might've been the 2016 election or it might've been the, the next one, but you know, I was, I was, no, it must've been the, the second one. Cause the first election I've, I voted uh, third party. And then this last election I abstained. And as I was, I was really wrestling through the morality of it, abstaining. And I remember sitting in church one day and you know, their, their announcements and they're saying, all right, uh, can anybody volunteer for the food pantry? And you know, like nobody's volunteering for the food pantry. Uh, there are like two people who always go who volunteer. And I was like, I didn't feel guilty because, you know, I'm busy. We've got stuff to do. I didn't think anybody else was guilty because everybody's got stuff to do. But man, then when you talk about voting, people are like, it's your obligation to be at that voting booth. And it struck me that like that showed me where I thought power lay. Like I have to make it to the voting booth to cast one 140 millionth of a say in this election every four years, like that's duty, that's obligation, that's more morality, but to show up at a food pantry, you know, and build relationships with those people and show up once a week or once a month for, you know, for years on end to build relationships in my community. The idea is it's not going to make much of a difference. Yeah. Voting for the right candidate is going to make a difference, but that's not what we believe. And historically, that's not what the church looks like. Like, no, loving the poor and feeding the hungry transforms society. Yeah. And think about that. So like you go to the voting booth, you don't really have any meaningful interaction. Everybody's already made up their mind. Everybody's voting the way that they're going to vote. You don't have a meaningful, loving interaction with probably anybody. And what you're trying to do is, you know, the American get quick, uh, get rich quick or lose weight fast. Like if I can just go and pull that lever and make the guy up there, make those other people, my neighbors that I don't really like, make them do what I want them to do. That's going to fix society. It's not going to fix society for me to go and love my neighbor and get to know them so that I don't demonize them and so that we can have relationships that that edify one another. And Christianity is all about discipleship, which is a, a bottom-up approach, whereas government is all about coercion, which is a top-down, two very antithetical things. Well, and what we want, we want the we want to elect someone to be powerful over this stuff so that. Ultimately, we're very uncomfortable with being changed. We, we don't, we're resistant to transformation just across the board, hum, humanity, right? And it's because, you know, you can call it some evolutionary survival principles. You know, you just, you know what works and you're like, we're, we're resistant to things being different. But what God is drawing us out, he wants to write his law on our hearts, as he says, the new covenant that he has made with with humanity through Christ is to that the law will be in our heart and it transforms us into the people we should always have been that he wants to restore our true humanity but that's uncomfortable because it means you like you've got to become a new person right 
And voting for someone doesn't change you. Investing in someone who need has greater needs than you changes you. And so that is the hard way and it takes longer. But I wonder if, if like our resistance to that isn't so much as that it's so much easier is that somehow intuitively we know that's going to change us and we're totally fine how we are. We don't want to change. We're the Christians. We're the good guys. We just need everyone else to agree with us instead of engaging with people in a way that transforms our heart. And I think that's why God designed us to work this way in societies, because we each get transformed. We each have our hearts drawn more and are open more to love and understanding uh, when we engage in that kind of life. And that's what God wants for us, I believe. And the spirit changes us. We're transformed through service. My pastor says that all the time. We're transformed through service. And we're not transformed because we voted for the right team. And there is no right team. Like, I don't know how to like red pill people enough to be like, there's no right team. Every, every move, like, it's just like, it's checkmate. Go into the voting booth. They got you in checkmate. You lost. Like, there's no right move here. Every move you make, you lose. We want to think that we can vote for the right team and that that team is going to fix society and that through the power of the state, they will create a society that we think is better for at least for our tribe, for our people. Um, but that is not the way of Christ and that we the way of Christ is the harder way. We are transformed into his people by serving people. and. That is that bottom up approach. But again, like I said before, like it's, it's, it's actually top down in an upside down way, right? Because we're believing the power flows from Christ into his believers, into society. But the way it looks to the world is that that's bottom up um, because it's an inverted kingdom. Um, I have an upside down pyramid tattooed on my rib cage for, for that very reason and it has the greek word doulos which is slave and it's based on jesus's words that uh any anyone who would follow me must be a slave to all and it's like and it's it he tells his disciples that the context of who's going to be by his side who's going to have the seat of honor in his kingdom and it's like well the the most honored in the kingdom will be the best slave to everyone else be the best servant to everyone else and like that's because it, it, it is it's an inverted way of thinking of power structures um and that i don't think that that's like we we have uh, trouble getting our head around that that actually does give you power like it gives you influence it give it gives you authority like when you serve others well you have a kind of say in their life. You have a way of speaking to them. You have the opportunity to love them that you didn't have before. Like it is powerful to make yourself a servant to others. And, and it does give you a kind of authority uh, in your community. If you're the best servant, you, you have a kind of authority where people trust you more. They, 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 they trust your motives. They, they trust your word. Um, so uh, it's not like merely like, we think about that in this trite way, like, no, it's real power. It's real power. And it's more powerful than the power of uh, coercion, as you as you've talked about. It's more powerful than that kind of power. It's a better power. And it looks upside down to our world. But it is 
the right way that the universe was designed to function. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, what helped me to see that I did a season on nonviolent action to kind of, you know, look into its effectiveness and how it's done and all that. And, um, to, while I was researching that, there's this little book called victories without violence. Um, you can get it for free through, um, you know, uh, the archive, but it's, uh, it was just so powerful to see how there's so many times that there's a really violent situation and it, it was actually disarming for people to, um, you know, to use nonviolence. And one that sticks out to me, uh, in a different book, um, but you know, this guy's on this train and he knows jujitsu or whatnot. And, uh, he's in Japan and there's this, there's this drunk guy on a train who's starting to push around this woman. And, uh, he's like, all right, finally, I get to use my, you know, my skills. And this old guy just comes up and says, Hey buddy, what, what you drinking? And he starts talking about, um, you know, what he's drinking. And then he just starts to break down and talk about how his wife died and all kinds of things. And it's like, okay, that, that one dude could have went and beat up this guy and probably ticked him off. And he just gets on another train and now he's even more angry and hurts somebody else. But this old guy who could have gotten beat up goes and he disarms this man and gets to the root of the issue, the, the heart issue, as opposed to just stopping the immediate violence. And, um, obviously that doesn't always work, but, um, if, if we're going to talk about true transformation, it only happens in one way. Right. It doesn't happen in the other way. Right. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, there does have to be a point when you live that way, that it has to be self-sacrificial, even into the point of death. I mean, you know, you give yourself to save another. That's the example Christ has given us. Um, so, I mean, w- the idea is that we receive violence to end violence. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, and I, I'm, I like to qualify that I'm not a pacifist, but I am an an advocate of nonviolence because I I think that it is more powerful. Um, and pacifism seems, it has a connotation of, um, pacifism. Uh, pacifism is pacifism. My accent's getting in the way there, but, um, you know, P-A-S-I-F-I-S-M versus P-A-S-S-I-V-I-S-M. So um, I don't like using that word because of that. I, I just say I'm an advocate of nonviolence. So I try to speak of it in a positive way. And I, I'm i not totally ruling out that you might not have a choice sometimes. You know, there's the people always want to bring up the Bonhoeffer exception. You know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I'm not that. We can talk hypotheticals all day. When someone barges into your home, what are you going to do? I don't know. That's a hypothetical yeah. that I, most people don't ever have to consider, you know? Yeah. So, so uh, sp- speaking of tattoos as well, I've got, uh, I've got upside down kingdom as well. There you <laughs> go. Uh, all right. Donald, Donald Craybill's uh, book. I don't know if you read him upside down kingdom, but that was, uh, you know, that was one of the first pacifist, you know, sort of books that got me on my, my route. I love that concept, you know, the kingdom, but then the upside down part. Um, all right. So I want to, I want to ask one last question here. Um, so when I, when I listened to your interview with Preston Sprinkle, you mentioned Jacques Ellul and I, he, he had been on my radar for a long time and I've always wanted to read him, but that was finally kind of when I, when I was like, okay, I'm going to 
I'm going to actually go and read him. Unfortunately, I didn't read him on anarchism because I was I was kind of already past uh, that season. Um, but I did read him on propaganda because that's that's what I'm working oh, on yeah. for the next season. And uh, so I read his book Propaganda and his book um, The Technological Society. And it it's like I mean he's like Nostradamus, but but better because Nostradamus was like very it's ambiguous. insane how prescient he was it's yeah. an, I mean really like it's nuts to think he wrote in the 50s I mean it's just nuts like he is describing ours so I haven't read the propaganda I've read excerpts let me clarify I have read excerpts of his work on propaganda but I've read the technological society and it is it is like it is mind-blowing like he it's 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 like he is one of these Silicon Valley thinkers you know, and it's like there was no such there wasn't Silicon Valley was it was so far removed from being a thing. It wasn't like it was just before. It wasn't like we could see it coming. No one could see. How did he see this? You know, how did he see uh, how it was going to end up? And I'm like, which makes me think. This was all fairly predictable, like if it can be predicted, it you know, maybe we should have seen more of it coming and maybe we got manipulated by forces that were allegedly for our good to create a more technologically dependent society that maybe has not been good at all. Maybe it's been sinister, you know? Um, and like, we really need to analyze and think, I, I think we need to, I think I very much advocate for anyone to go read Jacques Ellul because it had the effect for me. We're going like, we've all been suckered. There has been, there have been sinister forces at play to fundamentally alter society in ways that are not uh, against what is good um and to to create more of a power vacuum to create more uh inequity to um uh eliminate the middle class which everyone talks about as this fear tactic thing but it is a really bad thing <laughs> you know it means that they're the rich are richer and the poor are poorer um and like technology and you know, there are other thinkers who have predicted that with the rise of social media and, and a lot of other things that we're on the verge of we're on the cusp of a new dark ages. Some people say we've already entered a new dark ages where we no longer uh, consider truth and beauty and, um, and and study and contemplative living as valuable. It's all it's all about like constant entertainment, which is making us dumber. And it's not just. Like it's actually making us dumber. It's not making us function in dumb ways. It's like, it's altering our brain chemistry. Like we can't, I find myself having trouble reading compared to like when I remember it being as an undergrad, like I used to could knock out a 200 page book in an afternoon, you know, and really, you know, I would pass any test on the, on the material, you know? And now I'm like, I get bogged down 20 pages into something. And it's just like, it's harder to, stay with a thought or concept because i'm so online i guess i don't know that the algorithms have affected my brain chemistry in ways that like are antithetical to how the spirit wants to transform my soul so these are all things that a little talks about like he predicts all this like yeah so, <laughs> so maybe you can read uh you can read propaganda and for the next season i'll we'll try to get together again and talk about that but um I think he, they're tied he, together. They're tied together. Yeah. I mean, all of his, uh, his thought is all tied together. 
But you I mean, you've read the, his book on uh, on anarchism, right? I have, yeah. Okay, so maybe you could pull out, you know, one or two big concepts that you think he touches on specifics that you think would be pertinent to to our discussion here. Uh, yeah. Well, I sh- I've read it a while ago now, so let me think because the biggest thing for me, and when I first read it, the biggest thing for me, uh was even just considering it as a possibility like it wasn't on it wasn't on my radar as an option um and so when i talk to people about when i try to encourage people to read a little on christian anarchy um the main thing i'm trying to accomplish is that there's a different way of thinking about politics and don't trip over this concept of anarchy, but there does need to, like anarchy carries this kind of mindset of antagonism of, you know, in some ways kind of militant. And I think that that can be helpful to keep that word and say, yeah, we need to have a spirit of that, um, of like, no, we are against the powers and structures of this world. Sounds very New Testament. Sounds like the Apostle Paul could have written that, you know, but um, that is the biggest one for me. Now, Alul is writing not even a decade, I think, after the end of World War II. So his most of the idealism of the world, everybody has rethinking their ideas. Um, and he's writing in France at a time when... Uh, in the United States, you're having the Red Scare, you're having McCarthyism, you're having, um, that's when they, you know, started doing the Pledge of Allegiance in schools. That's when they, in, 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 you know, instituted the One Nation Under God, all that. So you're tying into propaganda a little bit. You're seeing that the state is trying to co-op the God talk to gain power. And he's writing as a complete rejection. Now he's coming from a, a place where he was a, a he was a Marxist, you know. And that's the other thing that I remember reading about the book that I found very surprising. He he began he moved from Marxism to Christian anarchy, um, but it was the same kind of he saw that that the kind of manipulation and propaganda and it's like it's really just about controlling populations. It's really about giving them what they think they want telling them that you can deliver it and so that you can gain power over them. It's always about that. It's always, it's never not about that. And I think that brings us full circle to, you know, we talked about sports at the beginning, which, which seems completely unrelated, but you know, when you get into kneeling and flags and, and uh, you know, army displays at uh, or air force displays at sporting events, I mean, this is this is exactly it. You just talked about them co-opting everything, and they, they do. do. They do, and 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 like I mean, I was listening to a Eagles podcast just this week, and uh, uh, the Eagles. Uh, there, there's a player who was in the army, like he played football for army, and he had to fulfill his military duty or whatever. Anyway, they're, you know, they're talking about him maybe not making the roster. And the one podcast host said to the others, like, oh, so you don't you don't support the troops. And then he had to go into this thing, whole thing. I know I very much support the troops. So grateful for what they do. And it's almost like this rote thing. You know exactly what he's going to say because it's what you have to say. 
thankful for their sacrifice and uh, enabling us to live in a, in a free country to even be able to make a podcast like this because without their sacrifice, we wouldn't be able. they have convinced us. They have convinced us that without the military, we wouldn't be able to think and to discuss things freely as though no one before the advent of the United States of America ever discussed things and spoke freely about anything. Like only because the troops have invaded other countries and killed the other bad guys, are we able to do this? They've convinced us that that's true. And they say this and you, they see it at sporting events. Oh, you got to thank, thank God for the troops because we wouldn't be able to just all gather and watch a football game if it wasn't for the troops. That's not true. It's not true at all. Like, why do we think that? Like, I don't get it. Yeah. So, no, I, I resist all of that. And, you know, and people, you know, people introduce the concept of patriotism. I'm like, I mean, I'm a patriot to a degree. Um, I'm anti-military, but, you know, in the World Cup, I'm I'm as American as you can get. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm cheering for the United States, you know, because they, I, but the consequences are different, <laughs> you know. It's like, it's not the same. It's like, I'm proud of my, of the society that has brought me, you know, the, 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 and has nurtured me and has given, I, I feel a kindredness to the land that I'm from and the people and, you know, the, the ideology in some ways, I think you know, there's good things here and, and I'm proud of a lot of those things, but part of what I'm proud of is that it does, you know, the idea is that we are supposed to be liberated from pow powerful forces. That was this idea of declaring independence, you know, and we've got, I don't know, we've gotten so far from that ideal, you know. I very much think that a more, uh, a small government, lim limited, more libertarian society would be more advantageous to the work of the church. We could be the church and then everyone else can work out your ideas. And let's see, let's see which ideas produce a better society instead of the government trying to force a particular way, you know, or one group electing their officials and saying it becomes this contest of who, who has the most popularity and who can get their people in office to create that society. And instead, let's have, a, let's limit the government's power to create society and let's just let it work out. And I think the church will win every time. If it's a fair, if, if it's a fair playing field, I think the way that Christ has led his people to live in society is going to create the most just society, the society that most flourishes. And if there is a level playing field for all, then I, I think that's going to be good for, for, for God's people. Yeah. It's just because, like, uh, Israelites in, uh, in Babylon, you know, eating, exactly not like eating the king's food. It's exactly like that. Yes, it's exactly like that. And I think we have to have the mindset of living as exiles. And yeah, you talked about I was on Preston Sprinkles podcast. I mean, he, you know, did his conference and, you know, that was the title was Exiles in Babylon. I mean, I, I think we need to. And does that mean that, you know, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, would they cheer for Babylon's soccer team? Well, maybe they would. There's no moral compromise there, but they're not going to bow to that statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They're not going to do that. And so there's a line you can draw, you know, um, they they were state officials. Like I, I bring that up because it's not like total like we're not just totally withdrawing, but we are living as exiles. Our loyalties are different. 
Our agenda is different. That doesn't mean we can't participate in the civilization or the society. It means that we do it for a different reason with different aims and different goals. And there will be a line that you won't cross. You know, um, I think if you, if the church in America could just live like exiles, I think that would just make, that would get us most of the way there, you know? So, so I was wrong. I do have one more question, but you know, maybe try to answer it in, in two minutes to kind of keep us sure. at our hour here. Sure. Um, so I, I, uh, I got to talk with, uh, Dr. Kristen, uh, Kristen, ja- I knew I was gonna mess that up. Krista Yanopoulos, um, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote, um, Christian Anarchy. And, um, one of the things that he, he brings up, uh, or he brought up was that a lot of the Christian anarchists that you're going to read the, the intellectual Christian anarchists, um, either don't believe in the resurrection, they think a lot of the miracles are, you know, no good, or they, um, they minimize the resurrection and, and miracles and things. And uh, kind of similarly, in, in a lot of the Christian anarchist groups that I've kind of um, been involved in, it seems like a lot of times there's, there's a limited emphasis on the resurrection. And, and there's a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, anti-state, you know, it's almost like anarchy is more about critiquing the state than it is about positively creating a community sometimes, you know, jumping on everything right. bad the state does. Uh, and I just, I don't, I almost feel like it's the opposite of nationalism, like where you've got these fanatics one way. Sometimes I feel like uh, the anti-state people are just fanatics for a different, a different thing. And I want to be a fanatic for you know, Jesus, like, okay, yeah, of course the state does what the state does, but like, let's, let's follow Jesus. How do you, as a, as a Christian, um, resolve that when you think about how a lot of the, the Christian anarchist community is, and especially the intellectuals who you kind of draw from for, yeah. Um, I mean, so they're more, that they're more committed to anarchism than the Christian part. Right. Um, and I, I think that's not, let's get it in the right order. It's Christian anarchy. And I just, all that means to me is that we are loyal and allegiant to Christ and Christ alone. No one can even come in the stratosphere of how we feel towards Jesus and what that means for our lives. But it does mean that what he has called us to uh will transform our societies it's it's not a uh we don't i don't even know if we have to engage to the point of critiquing the state all the time state's going to state they're going to do what they do they're going to try to defend their borders expand their influence expand their economy that's what they do i don't expect them to be any different there's really no point in me critiquing that i've already been told from the scriptures that that doesn't last and it won't end well but the kingdom of God is eternal and forever. So I am trying to live as a citizen of an eternal place within the time period of something I know is destined to perish. You know, like, and everyone knows that. No one reasonably thinks America is going to last forever or any state, whatever state you live under. No one thinks that. Everyone knows that state will meet its end at some point 
So I'm trying to live as a citizen of a kingdom within the time frame of uh, a rule that is much weaker, that has far less power, um, but that it currently is the thing right now. So it's like I'm not not intimidated by it. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know, the metaphor I think of, it's probably not a good metaphor, but I, I just thought of it, would be like, you know, if you're playing basketball with your son, you know, it's like, well, he's not that good. He's, I'm bigger than him. I'm stronger than him. I'm going to win. I'm not like trying to gear up. Like it's a big game. I'm not going to battle. Like if it's like seriously something significant on the line, right? Like what we have as Christians is vastly superior and more powerful and more eternal and will that. So it's like, in some ways you just kind of like, I kind of have an attitude of, nah, that's cute. Whatever you're doing, you know, that's cute. You know, good. I'm not surprised. I don't have to try to fix it. You know, I don't have to have a comment on it all the time. You know, um, you know, with the current things we got right now, the Supreme Court's dealing with the, the abortion issue and all of this, you know, it's like, yeah, I kind of just shrug my shoulders, you know, as a Christian. I, I, I do think that uh, abortion is wrong. I think it's a sin, you know, and I, I think it's a result of other sins, whether that's, uh, you know, uh, fornication or maybe it's maybe it's worse than that. Maybe it's rape. Maybe it's incest or that usually comes from other sins you know and so my faith gives me something to say about that sin too and i'm like well i'm not surprised by anything that they're doing the, the fact that we're even having the conversation is in some ways beneath us if we love people in a way that transforms their hearts then society begins to be transformed and we suddenly have far fewer of these issues you know so and I don't, I do believe in a resurrection. And I do believe that ultimately that society will not be enacted until the king returns and takes what's his. We're just living in a way that we're waiting on him to come do that. So we're not trying to overthrow the state. We're not trying to take charge. We're not trying to co-opt their power because it's not worth, it's not worth our time. We have a greater power within us already, you know? So I, I, I don't need to be preoccupied with what the state is doing all the time. I think it's good to be aware. I think it's good to keep your eyes open, you know, but I, I, I don't, you're right. It is almost just like being on the different team. You're constantly critiquing and saying where the state is doing that. Well, what did you think they're going to do? Like, why are you surprised by that? Of course they're doing these things that are stupid. And uh, you know, of course they're doing these things that are trying to gain more power and manipulate people and, propagandize people and of course they're doing that yes that's what they do we don't have to belabor the point but walking with jesus is not like that and we can live we will transform our society to a degree where they're going to see that the that jesus is the way that jesus is, is the only way for man to be made right with god in a way that produces human flourishing and justice for everyone it is the only way and if you believe that, your attitude towards the state has to be one of anarchism. I, I, I'm at a point where I can confidently say that. Like I, I don't, there's no other, your attitude towards the state has to be one of anarchism. That, and that means, and my, let me, and I'll close with this because it's, it's, not, it's not active 
anarchism is a passive, right? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a negative. It's saying no ruler, right? As Christians, we're saying no ruler, but Christ. So we're saying from the absence of something, we're saying, I just, all it means is I have no loyalty to the state. It's not meaning that does not mean you have to take up arms and get so militant and get on Twitter and start having arguments with people about it. It just, you know, it's it doesn't have to be proactive in any way. The only proactive part of it is the Christian part. The the anarchism is a negative. It's it's a reduction. It's a saying I'm taking things out so that there's only one thing left. Yeah, right? It's basically so just just refusing to kiss the bus to Caesar. Exactly. Yeah. We, we don't have to say, so saying Christ is Lord means that Caesar is not, right? That's been said by many, um, but they don't ever say that. They just say Christ is Lord, and they know that that means Caesar is not. You don't have to say Caesar is not. It's n- you don't have to say that part. You just have to say Christ is Lord, and you know that that means Caesar is not, you know? So that, that kind of needs to be the approach. It's like beneath us to even mention Caesar in the same sentence with Jesus. Like in some ways you're making it as though like they're two sides of the same coin. They're not, we don't even have to mention Caesar. We just say Christ is Lord. Period. That's a, that's a great place to end. Christ is Lord. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, When I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.